0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Free Lunch, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the topics and themes that matter most in Canadian business, news and economics. I'm your co-host, Sarah Bartnicka.
1: And I'm Taylor Scollin.
0: Taylor, one of the most dominant themes over the last year in the news has been the energy supply. Now that the West can't, you know, rely on Russia so much, how do we reshuffle things? How do we get more of it? And I'm noticing that nuclear energy has slowly started to enter the chat. Have you noticed this as well?
1: Yeah, I've definitely noticed that. And I think this is part of like a bigger trend of trying to find alternatives to fossil fuels, right? So it's driven by... A bunch of different things but there's also a lot of concerns that go along with nuclear like I think it's probably the most controversial of the low carbon or zero carbon energy uh, sources and that's understandable to a degree right we get tv shows like Chernobyl that show the sort of disastrous uh, consequences of what happens when nuclear power fails um, and people understandably are worried about radiation and what we do with the waste and, and all these sorts of things. So uh, it's a, a complicated subject for sure. So today we have on a guest who is going to give us the case for nuclear energy uh, and sort of break down why he thinks it's the most viable alternative to fossil fuels that we have. Uh, Dr. Chris Kiefer is a Toronto-based medical doctor and the founders of Doctors for Nuclear Energy and also the host of the Decouple podcast. Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. It's great to be here. So, can we just start with a little bit of a, a bio on yourself? Because you're a doctor, but a lot of your public work is in nuclear energy. So, how did you get interested in that? What's the motivation there?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I can understand why people are a bit puzzled by it. Um, you know, in medicine, we talk a lot about upstream medicine. You might have heard of things like the social determinants of health and the environmental determinants of health. Um, you know, there's lots of reasons that people get sick. Some of those are very individual, uh, like genetic causes. Uh, but a lot of them, you know, have a lot to do with the context in which we're existing, in which we're living. So, you know, poverty is probably the most potent determinant of health. But, you know, we're taught to think of those upstream causes. Uh, when my four-year-old son I shouldn't say my 4-year-old son was born. When he was born 4 years ago, um, you know, you start thinking a bit differently about time scales and time spans. You move away from your own selfish life to thinking, you know, 80, 90, hopefully 100 years into the future. Um, and uh climate change is uh, obviously very much something that's part of the cultural zeitgeist right now and I realized I hadn't actually done a lot of research. So, um I started diving into that literature, got um pretty freaked out, pretty doomy, pretty boring at parties. <laughs> um my ex-wife said you know do something about it um she meant sort the recycling better take out the compost more diligently um you know with my science-based background i i took a bit of a different path um discovered um some really great creative thinkers um on the topic and you know it really wasn't inspired by the mainstream traditional environmentalist narrative which hasn't changed. I think in the last 70 years. And is basically saying, you know, human beings have sinned um, against Mother Nature by industrializing. Um, and we just need to go back to happier times, back to the Garden of Eden, live in harmony with nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the world's a lot more complex than that. You know, I'm a doctor, I'm really happy to live in a time in which child mortality is not, you know, 40%. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, human beings um, didn't live in harmony with nature. We died in harmony with nature. The average woman used to give birth to six children and the population didn't change much. That means only two of them survived. Um, So we've gained a lot from, you know, high levels of energy use, uh, you know, from uh, all the improvements that have come along in the last 200 years. That being said, we've caused a lot of environmental harms. Um, And so, you know, I've been really drawn to a, a narrative which says, hey, how can we you know, continue the legacy of the benefits that we've achieved, but minimize our environmental impacts. Um, And nuclear is this transformative technology uh, that really allows that. Um, So hopefully that gives your listeners um, a little bit of a cohesive narrative to explain why I'm sitting here talking to you about nuclear. Okay. Yeah, I do see how it connects. So
1: before we get into some of, I guess, the details of nuclear power, uh, just a very basic question for, for my education here, how does a nuclear power plant actually work? Like how does it turn uranium or
2: plutonium or whatever into electricity that we can actually use? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, first thing is there's not a lot of sources or ways to make electricity. Um, you know, there's kinetic, Forces, so turning water uh, or wind, um, you know, rotating a turbine that way uh, into energy. Um, we have the photovoltaic effect, um, which Albert Einstein won the Nobel Prize in Physics for discovering, despite you know E equals MC squared probably being a more famous contribution. And that E equals MC squared is is you know at the heart of nuclear energy. You know, the final way that we make electricity is through thermal energy. So. You know, burning stuff is what we've done up until uh, the discovery of nuclear energy. Um, So you think of like a coal or natural gas plant, um, generally boiling water, flashing it into steam um, and using that enormous uh, expansion to generate pressures that can turn turbines and make electricity. Um, Nuclear is able to do that without combustion right? Um, You know, as a species, we've been tied to combustion. That's kind of the origin of our species. It's the reason we have, you know, less teeth, uh, big brains, smaller guts, and can do all the wonderful things that humans can do. Uh, Fire feels really natural. Um, You know, 1938, um, it was discovered that if you bombard uranium with neutrons, um, they will split and release a bunch of energy. Um, And by you know, the mid 50s, we had the first nuclear power plants generating electricity um, and they've been doing so ever since 20 uh, percent of the U.S.'s electricity uh, comes from nuclear, um, about 60 percent of electricity where I'm coming in from in Ontario. Um, so fundamentally, it's it's very different than coal and natural gas in terms of um, not producing any air pollution, not producing any CO2. But it's similar in terms of just how the the power plant functions it's just that your heat source is is different
0: chris how does it not produce any co2
2: sure yeah i mean this is this is getting a little into the the physics of it but um there's something called the strong uh atomic force right um and that's what holds the nucleus of an atom together um, and that's where that E equals MC squared comes into the the equation, right? Energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. The speed of light is a really big number. Squaring that becomes an even bigger number. And so, what's happening essentially um, is that you know neutrons are hitting you know one of the heaviest elements on the periodic table, destabilizing that nucleus. It's splitting apart. A tiny amount of mass is lost, and an enormous amount of energy is released. Um, and that's called fission. Um, and it doesn't involve burning anything. Um, it doesn't involve a chemical reaction. Um, and therefore, you don't get any CO2. And you also don't get any of the other impurities that come along um, with, say, natural gas or even worse, coal.
0: Got it. Got it. OK, so let's talk about the nuclear landscape. We'll call it in Canada. Like sure. how many plants do we have, where are they? How much electricity do they produce? Who buys that electricity? Like, give us the full rundown.
2: For sure, for sure. Yeah, so we um, built our nuclear fleet um, between the 70s and the 90s. Um, And the reason why, it's actually interesting because we're facing kind of similar times. The 1970s, um, we experienced the OPEC crisis, um, skyrocketing prices of fossil fuels. Um, Even coal got expensive, even though that wasn't directly related. And Ontario is kind of where most of our plants are. We do, we had two plants in Quebec and we still have one operating plant in New Brunswick. But, you know, why did Ontario take this path? Um, this is a similar story. Every country that's got a large, um, you know, nuclear deployment, I think with the exception of the US, um, has had some constraints on its fossil fuel resources. So, you know, Ontario, its electricity supply really started with hydroelectricity, mostly Niagara Falls produces a lot of juice. Um, but you know Ontario rapidly outgrew that. Um, and then the next power source that was available and plentiful was coal, um, but we don't actually have any of our own coal deposits. Um, so we were importing that coal um, from the Western US, and that got pretty expensive. What we did have um, was the world's second largest um, center of nuclear research. So second only to the Manhattan Project, um, was the research happening at Chalk River Laboratories. Um, hmm. We achieved like the second chain reaction um, ever um, in the world here in Canada. And that was because Europe was, um, you know, especially France, I mean, had been taken over by the Nazis. Um, there was serious um, worry that the UK would be overrun by the Nazis as well um, in you know 1941. Um, and so basically all of Europe's nuclear research came over to Canada. Um, and so what did Ontario have? We didn't have coal. Um, we had this amazing, um, scientific expertise and we discovered uranium. Um, and so we took a gamble and said, you know, let's, let's see if we can develop our own, you know, endogenous source of energy. And over the course of just 20 years, we commissioned, uh, 20 nuclear reactors in Ontario alone. Uh, which now, again, make up 60% of our electricity grid, so the, the majority. And it's this round-the-clock, stable electricity, which really underpins um, the Ontario economy. Now, we did still have a lot of coal on the grid, um, but we managed to make coal burning illegal in Ontario, and that had enormous benefits. You know, Talking again, circling back to the, the social-environmental determinants of health, um, we used to have 54 smog days a year uh, here in Toronto um, and there was a significant contribution from coal. We had the largest coal plant in North America um, to the west of here and you know the way that the uh, jet stream blows that was blowing that you know nasty smoke into Toronto. Um, and nuclear energy uh, provided ninety percent of the the uh, energy required to phase out coal that was North America's greatest greenhouse gas reduction, um, fully balanced out the increased emissions of the uh, oil sands in Alberta. So just a massive contribution in terms of, of decarbonization. Uh, but that's I'm probably getting a little long winded here. That's kind of the story in a nutshell of, of nuclear in Ontario. Um, similar story in France. There's a saying in France, um, we do not have oil, but we have ideas. Uh, Post-war again, they had a lot of heavy industry, a lot of engineering expertise, didn't have any coal. Um, They were burning Middle Eastern oil for their electricity. um, And they built 54 nuclear reactors. They brought them online over about a 20-year period, um, accidentally decarbonized their electricity grid. um, And that still is what underpins uh, France's electricity system. And you'll see a similar pattern around the world. Yeah, I remember those smog days.
1: It was a A huge achievement. We, we don't talk about that really, but it is uh, a massive quality of life improvement not to have that anymore. Uh, so, why did we stop building nuclear plants in the 90s? Yeah, like, I mean, we haven't really built anything since
2: then. What, what happened? Yeah, I mean, you're speaking about here in Canada. Um, yeah. certainly, you know, after the 90s, we continued to build our, our own Kando reactor. And maybe we'll talk about that reactor a little bit because it's, it's pretty special. Again, what Canada achieved. Um, we did build more of these reactors overseas, uh, Romania, Argentina, uh, China, South Korea. And of course, you know, Japan continued to build a lot of nuclear reactors in the 90s. Uh, Korea in the 2000s. China's building a lot of reactors now. Um, United Arab Emirates just brought on four great big reactors. Um, So it's still happening. But yeah, why did it stop in Canada? Um, I would say the the simplest reason, and I think the, the most compelling reason, is that we just saw a decrease in electricity demand. You know, we were adding to the grid year on year you know, four or five, 6%, you know, doubling the size of the grid every 15 to 20 years, um, just because of population growth and economic growth. Um, And that kind of fizzled um, after the energy crisis in the 70s and 80s. Um, And there just wasn't the demand there to justify these capital intensive investments. Um, If you're going to be spending several billion dollars in a bunch of years, you know, building a nuclear plant, um, you got to be damn sure that there's customers there to buy those electrons out the other end. Um, and so there was a bit of a loss of confidence in that I'd say that's the number one factor um, number two would be you know cheap uh, and abundant fossil fuels um, you know there's there's nothing easier um, and I mean that's it's the it's the building block the thing that underpins our entire civilization are fossil fuels um, and if they're cheap and available and abundant um, they can you know outcompete nuclear particularly because of the ways that we've chosen to over-regulate nuclear. If the same kind of um, regulations were applied to fossil fuels, we wouldn't be able to burn anything, you know, because you, again, have this absolutely uncontained waste that's produced. Um, There's a lot of a lot of harms, the kind of uh, safety monitoring, even just within the plants. Like I've visited a whole number of nuclear plants now and the kind of cultures of excellence and, you know, attempts to achieve radiation levels as low as reasonably achievable, even though it's irrelevant to health. Um, you know, the, the levels they're trying to regulate down to, if you were to try and regulate, um, you know, the, the health risks within, you know, to the workers within a a coal plant to the level of nuclear, that plant, you know, wouldn't be economically feasible. So it actually speaks to the economic viability Mm -hmm. of nuclear, that it's able to produce, uh, the electricity that it does competitively, despite the regulatory burden that's placed upon it. Um, so, maybe those are kind of the big three. I mean, we could talk for an hour about this. It's an area that I'm really interested in. Um, a number of factors there. Um, you know, there have been accidents, but I wouldn't say those are the primary drivers because many countries continue to to build nuclear rapidly. Again, if you don't have fossil fuels, um, nuclear is the best swap in on the electricity grid. It's truly capable of replacing things like coal, as we did in Ontario. You know, there's been a lot of hype about wind and solar, um, you know, but the evidence is in we've run the experiments, Um, you know, Germany spent half a trillion dollars on a wind and solar centric, uh, you know, energy transition, so called energy transition over the last 20 years, coal is still the number one source of electricity on their grid. Um, and we can get into, you know, why that is, I'm sure we're going to make some comparisons later. Um, so again, if you don't have fossil yeah. fuels or if you're at risk, like energy security is a big concern now, right? With the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, and the cutoff of natural gas to Europe from Russia, but think also of places like South Korea, functionally an island because of North Korea up the peninsula there or Japan, you know, very limited in its in its own fossil fuel supplies an island, maybe Taiwan, um, vulnerable to blockade. Um, these are all countries that, you know, for very pragmatic reasons, uh, used uh, nuclear energy to great effect, um, and they've you know really underpinned a lot of the economic success of those economies.
1: Can we just zero in on the cost factor for a second because it sounds like that's sure. a big driver of what ends up going into the grid. So, what is the cost of a nuclear plant like? Uh, compared to like a natural gas plant? Uh, sure, how does sure. that break down over the life cycle of the, the plant?
2: So, you know, it's hard to say there's one cost for nuclear. Um, a big thing that ends up impacting the final cost is the cost of construction. And, you know, that's the capital cost and the cost of capital. Nuclear plants take a number of years to build. The world record um, is from Japan, um, and that was about three and a half years. Um, we've just seen um, the Vogel reactor in the U.S. get connected to the grid after, I believe, 11 years. Um, all that time that you're building, you're not generating any electricity, um, and you're racking up debt. Um, And I mean, you know, there's similar comparators, you know, a big copper mine, you might have to start with a kind of $4 billion loan, you got to run your equipment around the clock to, uh, to make it economically viable. Um, But, you know, you can imagine with those kind of construction schedules, and then um, some of the burdens of regulation, some of the unfamiliarity in the West recently, um, you know, we've been, frankly, a bit irresponsible building first-of-a-kind designs with a supply chain that's atrophied with workers that have never, you know, worked in nuclear construction. Um, So those kind of cost Mm -hmm. overruns during the build um, can lead to a higher cost going forward. Um, You know, places like Ontario, we built nuclear very economically, cost-competitive to coal, um, and nuclear is the second cheapest source of electricity on the grid. Um, You know, the thing about nuclear, I mentioned those high upfront capital costs, but it lasts a long time, you know, our nuclear plants in Ontario have been going 40 years, Um, plants in the US are getting relicensed to 60, 80 years. Um, The reality is that you can swap out a lot of components, this is a very high value piece of infrastructure. And the longer that you run that plant, you know, the longer that initial debt is amortized over. Um, And so these mature plants are producing very, very cheap power. Now, it gets complicated, because we've moved from a model of, you know, a regulated monopoly utility, um, or a, you know, a crown corporation like we have here in in Canada, like we had in Ontario with Ontario hydro, um, you know, where you had a single operator that was responsible for the whole system. Um, we've moved to, in some cases, energy only markets, um, deregulated electricity markets, and that's really disadvantaged nuclear. Um, you know, the, the Hmm. incredible abundance of frack natural gas in the States, for instance, um, has made nuclear, um, comparatively in some jurisdictions, uneconomic. And those jurisdictions tend to be those deregulated markets uh, because nuclear is providing that round-the-clock base load that underpins the stability of the grid, but it's not rewarded in the same way um, that a peaker plant is, right? You know, when anything's scarce, we pay more for it. So, you know, when there's big peaks in demand and we, you know, have a generator that can run in and produce power for a few hours, it gets rewarded. Um, and then in addition, um, wind and solar um, are almost free when the weather cooperates, And if everybody's bidding in, wind and solar can bid in very cheap, and that can disadvantage nuclear. That being said, and I'm sure we'll get into this again when we talk about um, wind and solar, I'll plant this seed. Wind and solar are a very cheap way to make expensive electricity. So that's a bit of a meandering response to the cost of nuclear. Um, It can be very affordable. Um, Again, in South Korea as well, um, as cheap as coal. Um, You know, the regulations placed upon nuclear, which are really unique, do drive up costs. Um, but it has the potential, certainly, um, to be as cheap, to be cost competitive with fossil fuels um, and in many areas around the world is the cheapest or here in Ontario, the second cheapest source of electricity.
0: We will definitely get into wind and solar. But first, uh, I have a question about safety, because of all the low carbon energy sources Uh, people are kind of understandably the most freaked out about nuclear energy. They think of Chernobyl, they think of Fukushima. Like there's some, I think there's like a radioactive water leak happening in like Minnesota right now. So I guess my question to you is, is nuclear energy safe?
2: Okay, so this requires a discussion about radiation and people are freaked out about radiation. You know, there's all kinds of toxins and carcinogens in our environment. And mm-hmm. as I said, you know, as a species, we grew up with fire. You don't think twice about sitting next to a campfire. I mean, when the smoke blows in your face from a campfire, it's like smoking a pack of cigarettes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a semi-truck idling on the street, um, sorry, a burning burning a, um, you know, having a wood-burning stove um, in your house is equivalent to idling an 18-wheeler in front of your house in terms of the air pollution impacts, right? Why are we freaked out about radiation? We, we weren't initially. Um, pre because we discovered the phenomenon of nuclear uh, of of radiation and nuclear decay um, prior to the creation of the atomic bomb. But, you know, that was the big entry onto the scene for the phenomenon of nuclear um, was the bombings at Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the whole um, sort of trauma imposed by the massive destructiveness of these weapons. You know, when we look at the accidents, it's interesting, right? We call them catastrophes, disasters. Um, You know, the only accident that's occurred um, in the Americas is uh, the Three Mile Island incident. You know, that was a meltdown of a pressurized water reactor. Um, This was a costly industrial accident. The plant was only a year old. As we mentioned, billions of dollars went into building it, and it only operated for a short period. Um, However, what were the health impacts off-site? you know, the highest dose of radiation that a member of the public got as a result uh, of the Three Mile Island meltdown was equivalent to a chest x-ray. Okay, I'm an emergency doctor, I x-ray people all day long, I CT scan people, I give people, you know, comparatively, there's still very low dose radiation, but in a flash, I'm giving people the equivalent of all the dose of radiation they get in a year just from living, right? So, you know, you and I living in Canada or North America, um, we get about, you know, I'll just, the units are kind of meaningless here, but we get about three, uh, two to three millisieverts of background radiation, and that's from things like cosmic rays from outer space. It's um, naturally occurring radioisotopes in our bodies, um, in the food that we eat, um, in the soil around us. Ninety-three um, percent of our dose of radiation that we get every year is from medicine. If you look at you know population averages. Um, so I'm, I'm the guy who, who is the main source of radiation, um, for the average Canadian or a person living in a modern industrialized world. Are people scared of radiation? Like I have, I have parents coming in with kids that just bonk their head on the coffee table. Doctor, please scan my kid's brain. Right. When the benefits of radiation are individual, people aren't freaked out about it at all. Right. If you want cancer treatment, if you want medical diagnostics, when the benefits are population wide right and we saw that with the ontario coal phase out nuclear powered the ontario coal phase out you know it's estimated that a thousand lives per year have been saved um, as a result of improved air quality tens of thousands of hospitalizations then we kind of have the opportunity to be a bit freaked out about it um you know in terms of the other accidents three mile island you know it's interesting there's an environmentalist in the uk george mombio um, and you know within weeks of the fukushima incident occurring Um, He really changed the narrative because he's like, this is a worst case scenario. These were three nuclear meltdowns of huge nuclear reactors, right? You know, the world's like fourth largest earthquake ever measured, which tilted the axis of the earth several centimeters. I mean, this was a real force of nature that caused this. But what were the health consequences? Nobody has died as a consequence of an exposure to radiation from Fukushima. Nobody. really? Yeah. And then in terms of the cleanup, because you hear, but what about this, like, you know, $100 billion wow. cleanup that's being imposed? Well, you know, artificial radiation has this, has no different health consequences than natural radiation. And the background doses of radiation around the world are very different. So I mentioned here, and again, forget about the unit, just the numbers are useful as a comparator. We get about two to three millisieverts of radiation every year. If you live in Ramsar, Iran, you get 250 millisieverts per year if you live in kerala india about 50 if you live in denver colorado about 10 most of the fukushima prefecture now is under about 10 or 20 so would we evacuate denver colorado would we strip all the soil down and put it in plastic bags would we evacuate kerala india that's a big state India is pretty highly populated. No, and we don't see any increase in cancer rates in these areas with higher natural background doses of radiation. So it's it's our, it's our kind of fear of radiation, which is driving a lot of this. Um, and, you know, it's just not a very potent carcinogen, certainly at very high levels. And the only people that have experienced those high levels as a result of a nuclear accident, you know, are unfortunately in Chernobyl. Um, the people working at the plant that day, the firefighters, um, you know, there were, you know, not that many, but, you know, about 50 people that died as a result of very high doses of radiation. And then unfortunately, there was a a number of thyroid cancers because of, you know, public health measures that were not taken later. Again, Chernobyl, an old reactor design, no one's building those anymore, no containment. Um, So a very different situation. But you have one nuclear accident in the world um, that's estimated to so far have killed less than 100 people with the potential for maybe another 150 lives shortened as a result of thyroid cancer, so are these catastrophes? Are they disasters? Are they accidents? You know, put that in context of other industries, like you know, the Bhopal incident in India, where about 10,000 people's lives were snuffed out by you know a chemical leak from a chemical plant. Put that in the context of you know any other source of electricity, there's been collapses of hydro dams that have killed you know, more than 100,000 people in China. Um, there's natural gas explosions. Are those catastrophes? I don't know, I'll leave it, I'll leave it to the listener to judge, but I think what's necessary, um, and it's a bit difficult because it's a highly emotional issue, is to take a science-based approach and actually tally up the numbers. And when you do, nuclear comes in right above solar as the second safest source of electricity. Safer than wind because people, you know, maintaining wind turbines is pretty crazy, right? Um, So, I mean, the scientific answer is there, but the the, the challenge, of course, is communicating this to a public which is still deeply scarred by the Cold War, particularly that Boomer generation. But I think we're seeing a a real difference in opinion of, you know, from young folks like ourselves.
1: (laughs) What are the safety measures at a nuclear? Because I feel like when, you know, someone says, well, we're going to build a nuclear plant in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Everyone thinks of their neighborhood going up in a mushroom cloud. So right. that doesn't happen.
2: Why? Well, interestingly, people that live in communities near nuclear plants are very supportive of those nuclear plants and have the lowest fears. Um, it's often people off, you know, and and maybe it's similar to kind of of like rural and urban Canada, like people, people who live next to a plant really understand it, understand the relative risks. Mm. Now your additional radiation dose from living next to a nuclear plant is equivalent to eating about half a banana every year because bananas are very weakly radioactive. So, um, as I mentioned, this is a highly, highly regulated sector, um, and you know, you mentioned in Minnesota uh, some release of uh, tritiated water. That's a routine part of what happens when we refuel nuclear power plants. A very, very weak source of radiation, and the releases are well below, um, you know, the safe level, uh, you know, that we get from uh, natural radioisotopes in drinking water, for instance. But you know, we'll kind of leave that aside. In terms of the safety measures, um, again, we've we've had experiences now, right? Um, the Chernobyl reactor, not a safe reactor right doesn't have containment. Um, But these uh, pressurized water reactors with containment have proven to be very safe, even in these worst case scenarios, as I mentioned, like Fukushima, um, and and Three Mile Island. Um, And there's been a lot of learning. So after Fukushima, you know, all around the world, all of the operators came together because an injury to one is an injury to all here right for the sector, Um, and learn from that event. Um, So you know, there's a number of, you know, for instance, just I know mostly about the CANDU reactor I visited a lot of can-do facilities. Um, there's, you know, a number of really rapid shutdown systems. Even in Japan, um, you know, the earthquake automatically shut down those reactors. Uh, the problem that you have is once the reactivity stops, you still have a thermal mass from that fuel that's still quite hot. It needs to be cooled for, a, you know, a number of days, um, and that is accomplished in a candor reactor. It can be done passively uh, just by the basic physics, something called thermal siphoning. Anyway, there's a whole, there's a whole number of safety measures and the safety culture um, is really frankly uh, bizarre to behold, you know, as an outsider going to visit these places. Um, everything is done to the book. Uh, a lot of planning goes into it. The comparison I'd make, and I'll probably make this comparison when we talk about waste is to the aviation industry. Flying is insane right? We routinely get in these thin skinned aircraft, we fly at 30,000 feet where there's barely any oxygen at speeds approaching the speed of sound, often over massive bodies of water like the Atlantic or Pacific, like, and ask any human being, you know, up until about 100 years ago, if they felt that that would be particularly safe. It's not, but we make it safe, (laughs) right? And even though I mean, this this is a crazy stat, I was looking into this the other day, there are 4 billion passenger flights every year, on planet Earth, on over 43 million aircraft, uh, you know, aircraft flights. Um, And we average between about 75 and 300 deaths per year. And that sucks. But People consider that very acceptable based upon the conveniences uh, that are there and and our confidence that we have in the aviation industry. When you think about how crazy that is, I mean, there are something like 10,000 mission-critical moving parts on a modern airliner. All of those need to be maintained um, in adequate working order to avoid accidents. You need the human factors. You need to make sure your pilots and crew are trained very well, your air traffic control, all the maintenance at the airport. Um, That's a very complex system. We managed to pull it off so there's this kind of paradox you know in modern society we make dangerous things safe unfortunately you know a lot of the accidents i see are people falling off of ladders ladders are incredibly dangerous but we you know ladder doesn't seem dangerous to us so we don't make it safe i hope that you know gives you an answer without getting into sort of high level technical you know what are the systems in a plant that make it safe Uh, that analogy is probably more helpful
0: i mean the conversation about going back to your points about doses is still throwing me for a loop a bit, I'm going yeah. to have to sit with that one for a while. Um, and um, because, you know, one of those people that, you know, hears radiation and kind of, you know, yeah. gets a bit worried. Um, and so, okay, yeah, I'm going s- to... Other,
2: one other comparator, right? So, you know, there was sort of three groups involved in the Chernobyl accident. There were the people working at the plant and the firefighters that were there on day. Uh, on that day, they got enough dose to get something called acute radiation syndrome. Absolutely life-threatening. Um, you know, about 150 people got acute radiation syndrome, and about 30 people died from it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's very serious. Still, I mean, I, when I first learned about that, I was like, wow, that's that's a lot of people that survived. And that cohort of survivors, most of them are not dying of cancer, which is very interesting. Mm. Um, there was the, the liquidators, you know, over 100,000 people that responded during the cleanup. And we have not seen any increased cancer incidence and also you know there's been some interesting studies because everyone's freaked out radiation is gonna you know mutate my child um they've done these whole genome sequences right we can now sequence the human genome you know in seconds or minutes um comparing mom dad and kid and they've not found any increase um, in any kind of intergenerational effects even amongst these liquidators in people living you know who lived within that exclusion zone Um, The dose of radiation they got over the last 20 years is equivalent to one CT scan, right? one full body CT scan. So I, I find that, you know, as a doctor, that's both helpful for me to demystify radiation and also to explain it to people. Um, there is no avoiding radiation. There are no zero radiation environments. I've actually been to a really interesting um, research facility called the Snow Lab in Sudbury. And it's a, 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 a particle physics laboratory two kilometers underground in this mine. It's a really cool place to visit. You take this, you know, you dress up in a mining, suit, so you go down this two kilometer shaft and then you enter this, what seems kind of like a Dr. Evil base um, you know, you swap into, you take showers and swap into clothing so you don't bring any contamination in with you. And, and basically they're trying to insulate themselves from that cosmic radiation that's constantly coming in. Um, and there's a science experiment going on there where they're looking at, you know, can we, how low can we get in terms of radiation dose? Um, and they're doing all kinds of crazy things. Um, not just the shielding from, from the cosmic rays, but other things as well. And you just can't get anywhere near zero radiation. So we're constantly bathed in radiation. It's a natural phenomenon. And it's really really important to understand, you know, kind of where that safe threshold is. And it's pretty high. Um, And it's nothing that is uh, comparable to what, you know, certainly anyone around even some of the worst nuclear accidents um, are getting. So I know that sounds counterintuitive. Um, You know, the quality of the science is really interesting. Like around Chernobyl, there's estimates. You'll see studies saying a million people have died from Chernobyl. And you'll see estimates as low as, as what I'm quoting—you um, know, less than 100 so far, maybe 150 more to come, right? And and why is that? Well, you know, you have to look just as COVID has shown. Like, there's a lot of really shitty research out there, right? Um, science is messy. Um, the study's showing a million dead—guess who commissioned that study? Greenpeace, right? Another study showing 100,000 dead—that was the Green Party of Europe three scientists, really shoddy methodology. And the study showing less than 100 so far is eight UN agencies, and the cooperation of Russia, Ukraine and Belarus, hundreds of scientists, you know, consensus decision making, you know, 10 year process. So there's a lot of controversy around this. But you know, with my medical education and ability to appraise the quality of of literature, you know, I've been very convinced by, you know, the high quality, what I perceive to be very unbiased studies of, of the UN over you know, studies commissioned by environmentalist organizations and green parties.
0: Interesting. Hmm. Okay. So let's touch on nuclear waste very quickly. What is it? What do we do with it? Is it bad?
2: Sure, sure. I mean, so most of us um, got our education on The Simpsons, right? So it's, you know, green, oh, yeah, glowing course. goop stored in, you know, oil barrels, um, kind of leaking all over the place and turning fish into three eyed monsters, right? Um, so nuclear waste, what we worry about is the fuel that comes out of the reactor, right? You put uranium in, you split it, um, you know, in the course of that e equals MC squared, um, a lot of radiation is released. Um, and your your fuel becomes highly radioactive, you know, once you remove it from the reactor so radioactive that if you were to stand next to it unshielded, you'd get a lethal dose in seconds, right? So this is dangerous stuff, very dangerous stuff. But here's the cool thing. Um, Nuclear waste undergoes something called exponential radioactive decay. So 99.9% of the radioactivity is gone within 40 years. So, you know, and then you go at another three, 400 years, right? Um, And, nuclear waste, you could hold it in your hands. It'd be safe to hold in your hands because basically um, early on, there's a, a something called a gamma ray, which is very penetrating, can travel long distances. Over time, you only get down to a source of radiation that can't even get through a sheet of paper, let alone the epidermis of your skin. So I think people have this. Forty
0: years seems like a really long time. What do we do with it in the meantime?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, let me get into that, right? Because I said it's crazy dangerous out of the reactor. Here's here's that example of we make dangerous things safe. There's not been a single documented injury or death as a result of handling this deadly stuff as it comes out of the reactor. Okay, so it's actually a lot simpler than maintaining a a jet aircraft and an airport and all of that, um, all of those factors in, in pristine working order. What you have to do is um shield the waste underwater so the waste is removed from rea- from the reactor um usually robotically and moved underwater water is an amazing shield for radiation I've I've sat next to and stood next to you know the spent fuel pools where there are you know 20 years worth of highly radioactive nuclear waste um the dose that I was getting standing there was barely perceptible above background radiation because you know mm. twenty feet of water will shield you almost completely from radiation. So it's held there. It's also very thermally warm um, for about five to ten years till it cools off. And then underwater, it's placed into steel and concrete casks called dry casks, um, which are good for hundreds of years. Um, and so you know forty years is not a long time in a dry cask. And so the other big thing here is well, what's the quantity of waste that's produced? Again, the cool thing about uranium e equals MC squared is the energy density. So, you know, in the same volume of uranium um, compared to, say, burning a piece of coal, you get two million times more energy. So that essentially means two million times less waste. And so that's why nuclear power plants are able to contain all of their waste product on site. And, you know, I was down at Indian Point in New York recently, a plant that was recently closed, you know, their entire um, waste that they've produced In those dry casks sits on the area the size of you know two or three basketball courts if you took all of the waste that canada has produced in 70 years and put it in a hockey rink i like the hockey metaphor it's useful for people to understand that would be stacked up one telephone pole high so it's not a large volume and we can warehouse it and basically you know at our nuclear power plants there's these you know costco sized warehouses with these you know steel and concrete casks Um, that are engineered to withstand, you know, missile strikes, you know, trains crashing about 100 kilometers an hour, um, etc. They're very robust and sturdy. Um, They're very durable. Um, And the very cool thing about the waste is that we're only harvesting about 5% of the potential energy in it with existing technologies. Um, So there is technology that's currently deployed in Russia, and that's kind of on the cusp, where we can use the other 95% of the energy that's in that waste. So It should just sit there in those dry casks for another 40 50 years and then we should turn it into new fuel um and we don't have to do more mining for uranium at that point um for quite some time because we can use that in a new generation of nuclear reactors so the waste for me it's it's actually a strength um, of nuclear energy again very dangerous straight out of the reactor it has a a record of being perfectly managed to date Um, and there's so little of it that it can just sit there you know and it's not floating around, invisible in the atmosphere, changing the planet, and it's not getting into people's lungs and causing asthma, lung cancer, uh, emphysema. Um, so for me, it's a pretty cool source of waste. And I think, again, that's why, like, why am I passionate about advocating for this? I guess I like myth busting. And I think there's not a, not an air, potentially not another technology, um, that is as poorly misunderstood or where there's so many myths, um, you know, compared to nuclear energy. So, uh, so Again, I, th- I think there's it's time for real reframing about waste, and I think people are starting to open up to that message. So, can we get into the comparison with wind and solar a bit? Because I know
1: there's a lot of people uh, who look at these risks and they say, "Well, that's all good and well, but mm-hmm. you know, we have solar energy, we have wind energy, which, yeah. ha- at least in the popular perception, are." very low ri- or a zero risk energy source, right? They kind of like make you feel good. It feels good to totally, like, totally. oh, we got this thing. It just like takes the power of the sun. We turn that into energy. That's great. You know it why shouldn't great.
2: we it's just like why, why shouldn't we just build a ton of wind and solar <laughs> right. and forget about nuclear? It's super cool, right? And and if um the hype was real and you know, I could throw a few solar panels on my house um and run my entire life, my car, you know, all my energy needs reliably around the clock. Um yeah, hell yeah, I'd prefer that to building a nuclear power plant. But the hype is not real. I'm sorry to burst the bubble, right? So, and and again, this isn't based just upon opinion. This is based upon fact and evidence, right? So, as I was mentioning, Germany, you know, half a trillion dollars invested so far, and how is it that they've not been able to get rid of coal? How is it that they still have you know carbon emissions that are six, seven times that that we have here in Ontario? Well. <clears throat> you know, this is such an obvious truism, but the sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow. And actually, those conditions are the majority of the time. There's something called a capacity factor, which means what percentage of the potential power, you know, if, if the sun was shining 100% of the time, what, what, um, how much of, of that potential power is produced? Somewhere like Germany, I mean, this is not a sunny place like Australia, for instance, it's around 9%. So, what does this mean on a, on a concrete level? We can't have blackouts, right? So, you know, if, if you know, Germany has about a two week period, they actually have a word for it. It's called the Dunkelflaute, where they have no sun and no wind, right? It's crazy. Um, and so, you need a backup source of power. And listen, batteries are not it. Batteries are great for, you know, modulating voltage on the grid. Think of them as kind of a seconds to maybe minutes source of power. Um, this is not how you you know power your hospitals how you power your industry how you power your homes Um, and so what is that backup it's your traditional power sources right so germany had and forget about the units here again but they had about 100 gigawatts of installed capacity they added 120 gigawatts of wind and solar they've not been able to retire or reduce that 100 gigawatts of of their traditional sources so all you get with wind and solar is a duplication of your power system You do burn less fossil fuels, but when, and and it's not infrequent, when the, when the weather doesn't cooperate, you need to have enough fossil fuels on your system to meet 100% of peak demand. And so that's why, you know, wind and solar, when the weather's cooperating, yeah, sell that electricity under the grid, you can do it really cheap. But why is it that Germany has amongst the highest electricity costs in the world? Why is it that California and Australia, where they've deployed a lot of renewables, have some of the highest costs? It's because of the need to maintain this fossil fuel system. And those backup sources, those coal plants, those gas plants, you're not running them in this nice, steady fashion that the equipment likes to be run at. All of a sudden, you're going from highway driving to stop and go traffic. And that provides a lot of wear and tear on that vital backup infrastructure. And so, you know, we're seeing this in jurisdiction after jurisdiction. We're not achieving deep decarbonization. You know, again, Germany is about six, seven times more carbon intensive than Ontario. Um, you know, similar comparison to France, which is you know almost all nuclear powered. Um, not delivering on its climate benefits, um, driving up costs. Um, you know, creating the real um, situation of blackouts um, and the threat of blackouts. Um, and lastly, and relevant to you know places that are not China. Um, Unfortunately, almost the entire supply chain for wind and solar um, is um, in China or in East Asia. <clears throat> and if we're talking about spending tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars on an energy transition, we have a choice of where to spend that money. Here in Canada, we can spend it on nuclear, where the entire supply chain is here, massive economic stimulus, or we can send that money overseas to potentially a geopolitical adversary um, and just... You know, install these devices, which again don't deliver on their promises. Is there a world in which it becomes realistic to build just a ton of solar, so that
1: even at those peak times you have as much energy as you need, or a ton of wind, because the cost of cells has come down so much, the cost of batteries has come down so much, or is that a fantasy?
2: Well, what's the harm, right? And and there is a harm here because when people think about wind and solar, they think about the physical wind and the sun, and who doesn't love a nice yeah. breeze and who doesn't love the sun shining on your face, right? But these are sources of very dilute power. Remember we said, you know, nuclear has the highest energy density. Energy density determines environmental impact, right? So, um, you know, there's great life cycle studies of this, looking at how much mining is necessary for each energy source. Uh, nuclear has the lowest requirements. You know, nuclear plant may look large, but you know, the Picker Nuclear Station near where I live, Again, the size of maybe a couple Costcos in terms of the land footprint provides all of the electricity base load that we need in you know Canada's largest city. Um, wind and solar, unfortunately, you think about a wind turbine, right? Even a small two megawatt wind turbine. There's over 150 tons of steel in that tower, 200 tons of concrete in the foundation. There's rare earth minerals, and you got to build a lot of these things um, in order to generate the power. So this overbuild thing is insane to me, um, and it's not an, a, a, an, um, a narrative that's cohesive from an environmental perspective. Don't environmentalists want to have the least impact on the earth, do the least mining, convert the least land from you know wilderness or farming into you know an industrialized landscape? Um, and then you have the problem of waste. And I'm not going to, you know, make uh, any, any claim that, you know, a solar panel is, is as dangerous as a waste bundle. I just acknowledge that, you know, especially fresh out of the reactor, nuclear waste is totally deadly. Um, but in terms of that volume, remember we talked about Canada's total nuclear waste volume sitting on a, a hockey um, rink, uh, one telephone pole high. Solar produces 300 times more waste by volume. Right. So that's an enormous, and we're starting to see that problem because the other thing about solar is that it's short lived, um, solar panels last 20 to 30 years, you know, nuclear plant lasts 60, 80, maybe a hundred years. Um, that means that, you know, all of the solar that we've installed to date, um, by about 2040, 2050 needs to be replaced. And we're not talking just a few panels. We're talking, you know, millions and millions and millions of panels. You overbuild that, Again, every 20, 30 years, we're replacing that. That is an enormous drain on the world's mineral resources. And frankly, there's pretty compelling literature out there that we don't have enough copper, we don't have enough aluminum, we don't have enough rare earths um, in order to, you know, deploy this vision of a renewable centric energy transition.
0: This brings me back to a question that I should have asked at the top of the call. But when thinking about like the, yeah, like the amount of like copper that goes into making solar panels or concrete to make like a a wind, you know, turbine. Um, I do have a question about um, uranium sourcing in terms of how reliable is the supply of uranium? And are there any like risks there as far as like running out of supply or the cost of it or or anything that we should be worried about there?
2: Yeah. I mean, so uranium is very plentiful, Um, particularly right now. It's dirt cheap. Um, It's actually like pretty incredible you know, in terms of the energy that you get out, that the stuff is selling for, you know, a few dollars on the pound. Um, uh, it is quite plentiful. Um, and the, the key thing here in terms of the long-term viability, because people say if we went, you know, no one's suggesting we go hundred percent nuclear. I mean, hydroelectricity is great. There's, um, you know, an ideal mix. I think we should be nuclear centric, particularly in terms of electricity. Um, but if we were to upscale, you know, how does that compare to the world's reserves and how many years would we have? That's, a, you know, a, an intelligent question to ask. Um, what this hinges on, though, as well is, again, our ability to reuse that fuel um, in something called fast reactors, um, again, which are not theoretical technology. They're deployed in, in Russia right now. Um, we just haven't pursued it because uranium is so cheap right? But we have that potential to reuse all that fuel. Um, and just with the spent fuel that we have in the States, we've got hundreds of years, you know, if the States were to be 100% nuclear power, we have hundreds of years of uh, fuel in, in just the so-called waste. Um, you know, just like any commodity, when it gets more expensive, um, you start looking harder for it. Um, Canada has some of the richest uranium reserves uh, in the world. Um, and I don't, I don't see any shortage in sight, um, certainly on a centuries basis, uh, for, for uranium. And then again, we have the ability to reuse it. There's also even, you know, there's, uranium is an abundant, um, element in the earth's crust. There's, you know, grams per ton of soil under your feet in most places in the world. Um, but it's present in the oceans as well. And so there's technology being, um, uh, looked at by the Japanese, which can extract uranium from seawater. Of course that's not economical now. Um, but, uranium is such a small part of the cost of nuclear energy um, that even you know higher prices could be well tolerated. And essentially, if you're getting uranium out of seawater, that's basically an infinite source because rocks are constantly leaching it. It's achieving equilibrium in the world's oceans and, and can be extracted. So I think there's a number of answers to that question. You know, in the short term, there's really no concerns or worries, you know, in our traditional reactors, uh, in the medium term, you know, reusing the waste that we have, um, is an enormous asset and will get us, you know, centuries and centuries, probably millennia of, of power. And, you know, hopefully we make it that long as a species. <laughs> so let's say that tomorrow we
1: all woke up and decided, okay, we're going to do this. We want to go like all out on nuclear. Uh, how would that work? Like who would have to pay to build it? Who decides like what Mm -hmm. sort of power generation gets built? Just sort of paint a picture for us of how you would actually go about making this,
2: uh, scale up, I guess. Right. Well, first off, it's going to be hard as hell. Um, nuclear requires an incredible culture of ex- Yeah, darn. No, for sure. And I mean, I guess, you know, like for your listeners, they might be like, who is this guy? I mean, I've been called the uh, the nuclear Mormon because I, I go, um, you know, advocating and lobbying in Ottawa with a little backpack and a suit. And uh, I'd probably come across <laughs> as a little bit evangelical. Um, but I'll be the first to recognize that nuclear is challenging and hard. Is it a challenge that we can rise to? Absolutely. Have we done that in the past? Absolutely. I hope we can be, you know, as capable as our ancestors, Um, you know, here again in Canada, places like France, Japan, um, where nuclear has been very rapidly deployed. Um, When we need to do it, we find a way, right? And I think, you know, certainly Eastern Europe, there's a pragmatic reason why they want to deploy nuclear energy quickly. And that's because there's a huge danger to being reliant on Russia for energy right? So in those jurisdictions, they're rapidly making the moves. What does it require? Is this something that the private sector can do all by itself? No, no, because there are, you know, security and safeguarding concerns. Um, There's a lot of permitting and regulation that's essential, right? Um, Can the private sector finance a lot more? I think so. But you do need cooperation um, between government, the private sector, um, labor, et cetera, to, to kind of make this all fit together. Um, you know, I, I can make this into a really long detailed answer, but, um, I think, you know, that's probably a, a decent high level summary. Um, it's going to happen in different places at different times. I really do feel like it's inevitable because, again, um, we live in a fossil fueled civilization, right? Um, Vaclav Smil, who's a favorite thinker of mine, talks about the four pillars of civilization: steel, cement, fertilizer, uh, plastics. Um, these are all supplied by fossil fuels. The last sort of 200 years of you know incredible achievement and development of humanity is predicated on fossil fuels. Um, We're in for a bit of a shock when those resources start to peak. I think there's solid evidence that oil is starting to peak. Um, The shale fields in the U.S. um, are showing signs of following Hubbard's curve. I think we're heading into a world, you know, not in the next few years, but on a decadal scale where fossil fuels become increasingly unavailable and unaffordable. And nuclear is in my opinion, the best swap out for many fossil fuel services. So it's inevitable that there'll be higher rates of deployment um, and where it's necessary, it, it ends up happening. You know, would would France have you know done a massive nuclear build up without the OPEC crisis if oil stayed cheap forever and they could burn it in power plants to make electricity? Maybe not. Um, but these kind of pressures are already starting to build around the world. Um, And I think they'll continue to accelerate and and we're going to see rapid deployment and and those kind of collaborative relationships between the private sector, government, labor, et cetera. I guess if you were to pinpoint sort of one policy that
1: would have to happen or maybe the most important lever that would have to be pushed in order to build more nuclear, can you point to anything specifically?
2: I'd say one of the big barriers right now is finance. As as we said, these are you know very capital intensive projects. Um, it's estimated that more than sixty percent of the final cost of Hinckley Point, which is one of the big nuclear plants being built in the UK, um, is interest because they're borrowing at about nine or ten percent. Um, and so one of the fights I've been involved with is to include nuclear in green bond framework here in Canada and Ontario um, around the world. That's starting to happen. But, but you know, you have to rem- remember that bonds really built this country. Um, you know, bond funding is what and, and bond based debt is what built, you know, our great bits of infrastructure, be those hydro dams, bridges, railroads, et cetera, and, and power plants. Um, so it's a, it's a source of really low cost capital. Um, And I think we're starting to see a shift on that again. The EU, including nuclear in its uh, sustainable finance taxonomy, South Korea, just uh, two days ago, the UK declared nuclear as sustainable within their financing taxonomy. So that's really going to unleash the Hmm. capital that's required to start this. Um, So that's, that's, you know, one big policy change. Um, You know, I think another, and it's just happening inevitably, is people are seeing the limitations of wind and solar. Um, and in terms of a viable alternative, um, you know, nuclears, uh, you know, we're experiencing what some people are calling a renaissance or revival. Um, so, you know, from a policy perspective, I'm not sure that's quite the right way to put it. But from an education perspective, um, I think, you know, voices like my own and, and the organizations that I run and the podcast I run, hopefully, are starting to, you know, make some um, uh, changes within, within uh, you know, the minds of think tanks and, and policymakers.
1: Okay, and last question, just to wrap it up here. These new technologies that we're hearing about, SMRs, small modular reactors, SMRs, and fusion, I guess being the two big ones that are on my radar, at least. Sure. Uh, are they important? Does this change the energy landscape in some way? That we, like, How should we think about these things?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. The small modular reactor hype is only about 10 years old. Um, and it's really been pretty dominating of the discourse. I think it springs out of thinking that's, again, about 10 years old where we weren't seeing any growth um, in electricity demand in a lot of modern economies. Um, it was felt that nuclear needed a rebrand, maybe if it's smaller and friendlier and we don't use the word nuclear in the acronym, people will like it more. Um, <clears throat> and this idea that government will never you know, get into financing nuclear again, so only small-scale projects can be financed, um, are what led to that thinking. Nuclear has naturally scaled you know, the early the plants were small. Um, there's something called economies of scale. It's a pretty universal law. Um, and so nuclear plants have tended to um, arrive at the 600 to 1000 megawatt, um, size. And that's, that is a large reactor. Um, so I, I think the SMR hype is going to fizzle, to be honest, there's certainly niche applications. There's smaller grids in developing countries or even smaller Canadian provinces. Um, there's the idea of micro reactors uh, to free communities in the far North off of dependence on, on diesel fuel. That should all be supported, but I think it's got a relatively small role, uh, to play. That's a, you know, outsider heterodox opinion there, but Uh, I enjoy having those. In regards to fusion, um, it's just really hard, right? We went from that first splitting of the atom in 1938 to power plants producing electricity in as early as the 50s, right? Fusion, uh, the first uh, successful fusion was done in a particle accelerator in 1932, and we are nowhere close close to producing electricity. There was this uh, so-called breakthrough at Lawrence Livermore Laboratories in the US that got a lot of press. Um, You know, they used a laser which consumed 500 megajoules to shoot about 1.5 megajoules of energy at a target, and it generated three megajoules of energy out. Um, so still a huge net energy loss. And you also have to think that the heat that was generated needs to be turned into steam to turn a turbine and you lose about 40% of the energy in that process. It's not a 100% efficient process. So we are light years away. Um, and I just think the engineering challenges are too great. Again, it's relatively easy to split an atom and harness the resulting energy. It's really hard to try and recreate the conditions in the sun here on earth um, to, to even just make fusion happen um, for a few seconds, let alone sustain it, let alone build a whole power plant around it. Um, And, you know, it does not solve all of the problems of, you know, traditional nuclear fission energy. It still produces radioactive waste. There's still a link to, you know, thermonuclear, uh, nuclear weapons, you know, hydrogen bombs are based on fusion technology. Um, so I think a lot of the hype around fusion is, Hey, you can have all the great things of nuclear fission without any of the hangups. The hangups aren't that bad and it's just not true. Um, so, hmm. you know, I, I think, um, you know, research in it is compelling and interesting and should, and we should continue to do it, but we should not delude ourselves into thinking that we're heading towards a fusion powered world.
1: Okay. Well, Chris, that was, Fascinating. Thank you for answering all of our questions about nuclear. If people want to dive
2: deeper into this topic, where can they find your work? For sure. So, uh, I run the decouple podcast. That's a bit wonky, a bit high level. Um, we're about 170 episodes in, um, mostly focusing on nuclear, but also energy more broadly, environmentalism, et cetera. Um, so that's, if you Google decouplemedia.org, you can find it there on any of your podcast, uh, platforms of choice. I'm, um, on Twitter at underscore, sorry, (laughs) at doctor underscore Kiefer. Um, and my DMS are open, so feel free to, to be in touch. Um, and there is this, uh, burgeoning, uh, bizarre phenomenon of a nuclear advocacy community, um, emerging around the world. Um, people that are passionate about the environment, um, who are advocating for nuclear energy. So, um, if you get particularly inspired, um, you know, we're always looking for, for more people to fight the good fight on this front.
1: Love it. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us. That was great. My
2: pleasure, Taylor. Nice to meet you, sir.
0: That was a fascinating conversation with Chris. So Taylor, I have two questions for you. Were you a fan of nuclear going into this conversation? What were we thinking about it?
1: I'm definitely I was definitely sympathetic to to nuclear, um, but also wind and solar. You know, I love all energy. I love. It. I'm just pro energy. All you know? low
0: carbon energy, equally. Uh,
1: and, and I use high carbon energy too. I'm not going to deny that. But no, I, as long I was, as the
0: lights go on. I was,
1: <laughs> I was sympathetic to to nuclear and to wind and solar. And I guess after listening to Chris, I'm probably more sympathetic to nuclear and uh, feel like maybe wind and solar have been a bit. Overrated, but he's also just the last person I talked to. So I need to like go and do more research on that and maybe talk to some other people to uh, form a, a more solid opinion on that. What about you? Yeah,
0: we got to get a wind guy on. Um, I was one of those people. Um, I think that's why I asked the question about the skepticism too, right? I think people hear radiation, like you get really freaked out. Like I'm the person that sits in the dentist chair and like flinches every time that. You know, I'm asked if whether or not I want to do an x-ray because the answer is always no, because I'm scared of what it'll do to me. So I think um, putting it into context, really the doses that we're talking about here um, really helps me wrap my head around it. I think I need to sit with that a bit and think through it a bit more. But I went into this being like, this is a ter- this seems like a terrible idea. I'm not into it. Um, but then when you actually kind of go through research with a scientist as we did um it's it's interesting how kind of skewed your perception can be or you know how you're you're missing a ton of context right to be able to make like an informed decision of of whether or not you feel positively towards something or how scared you should be
1: yeah and when you talk about the the dangers of an energy source like you know, even people doing maintenance on wind turbines and, you know, falling off ladders and killing themselves. That's something that you never really think about. Cause I don't know, it seems less catastrophic than a nuclear meltdown. Um, but then when you run the numbers and you actually look at these things, you know, it ends up the nuclear, you know, is one of the most safe energy sources. So that was new information to me. And just the, putting it in in the context of yes like there are risks and dangers but there are dangers that we're not thinking about when it comes to other energy sources as well and it needs to be compared side by side
0: what i did also kind of like about it is that like it kind of contributes to these like net zero you know conversations and solutions that we're seeing but without like the byproduct of like a ton of junk like like the next person, like I would love to have a roof outfitted with solar panels, but it is, you know, a compelling point, right? To, you know, just to to, to showcase, like, okay, but you know, when you have solar panels, um, it does kind of lead to um, a ton of garbage, um, and I think the stat, the stat mm-hmm. um, to put into Canadian terms was like, but you know, you're really when you're left with a a, a hockey rink, you know, size amount of like nuclear waste um it you know seemingly if it's if it's dealt with safely it could be um i don't know could be a a solution
1: yeah that point about waste was really interesting um and i I didn't realize how little just like in physical space how little physical space nuclear waste actually consumed so that was also a uh an eye-opening uh insight the one thing that I was still left with questions about, and not the right fault of bananas. Chris's... Well, sure. <laughs> i mean a banana every day, so <laughs> I don't know what I'm putting in my body anymore. But no, the one thing I was still up to questions about, and it was not uh, Chris's fault for not answering them, but just we ran out of time to talk about it, was the cost of this and what it would mean for an electricity consumer. Like If we went and built a bunch of new nuclear plants with the modern day safety regulations and you know modern day interest rates how does that translate into our energy bill like does that mean that we're going to be paying way more than we would with just the natural gas plants we have and energy costs are such a politically hot and fraught issue is it politically viable even if it's you know a good solution from a climate perspective is it a viable solution from an economic perspective to build these plants and maybe it is but we just didn't get a chance to dig into those costs and how they would play out for consumers
0: yeah i'd love to get a follow-up on that because it is such an important piece of the conversation right like where these plants are actually going to go is one how much they will actually cost people
1: for sure what should we leave it there for now i think so Okay. Well, this has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. I'm Taylor Scollin. You can find me on Twitter at Taylor Scollin.
0: And I'm Sarah Bartnika. You can find me at Sarah Bartnika.
1: And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to search and follow Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get your podcasts. Also subscribe to our daily business newsletter. You can find that at readthepeak.com. We will see you next week.